Can you hear me? Is that too loud? So good evening, everybody. I want to start off just with a huge gratitude to all of your practice. I bow to your practice. Um, Bonte said that the other night, and I hope you know that we really mean it when we say that. It's so inspiring for me to sit in on the interviews and just to watch you practicing so diligently. And it really is very uplifting and inspiring, and I have huge gratitude to all of you for the practice that you're doing. So thank you. And to the teachers for coming on their day off. (laughs) Thank you for coming when they could be resting. So tonight I'm going to talk about one of our favorite topics, dukkha. (laughs) I think that you all have an intimate experience with dukkha right now. Uh, But I'm going to, so I offer this as a reflection then. I'm going to offer this as a reflection. So please just let it land anywhere on you that it might be helpful. And first I'd like to start off by thanking Bonte because he gave me a paper that he wrote. Bonte's actually a scholar. He's in school right now doing Buddhist and Pali studies. And he gave me a paper comparing two suttas, suttas that um, talk about the Four Noble Truths. And that was very helpful to me. So thank you, Bonte. And uh, one of the things in the sutta that uh, really struck me and that I wanted to just briefly touch upon was that in the suttas, um, there's really three things to, um, three ways to interact with the Dharma. Uh, The first way is to know the Dharma theoretically. So to know all the lists. You know, the Buddha was so good at very clearly delineating this uh, path to practice. Um, So to know the Dharma theoretically is one way to know the Dharma. The second way to know the Dharma is actually to know how to put it into practice, how to actually practice the Dharma. And the Buddha was very good at uh, telling us about that as well. And then the third way to know the Dharma is through a realization, to know deeply through, uh, through intuitive awareness what the concepts of the theory are pointing to. And I want to um, just tell a little Zen story that kind of illustrates that. The nun Wu Chi Chang asked the sixth Zen patriarch, said to the Zen, uh, the sixth Zen patriarch, I have studied the Maha Parinirvana Sutta for many years, yet there are many areas I just don't understand. Please help me. And the patriarch said, I'm illiterate. Please read out the characters to me, and perhaps I will be able to explain the meaning. And the nun was really surprised, and she said, You can't even read the characters? How are you able then to understand the meaning? And then the Zen patriarch said, Truth truth has nothing to do with words. Truth can be likened to the bright moon in the sky. Words, in this case, can be likened to a finger. The finger can point to the moon's location. However, the finger is not the moon. To look at the moon, it is necessary to gaze beyond the finger. So I wanted to say that because, um, you know, I think I personally as a yogi get caught up in a lot of conceptualization of what's happening to me on the cushion. And I just wanted to uh, give you that short short reading and a little analogy 
uh, epistemologically, I know that's a big word, but you know, in ways of knowing, uh, there's two ways, another way to think about it is there's two ways that you can know something. So let's take a peach. You know, we had peaches for dinner tonight. They were really good. And uh, you can know a peach, you could weigh a peach, you could dissect a peach, you could talk about the uh, qualities of the peach, how much water, how much matter, how much this or that. You can know the life cycle of the peach, you can know how it's grown, how long it takes to get ripe. And then you could eat the peach. So this practice is asking you to eat the peach. <laughs> So our conceptual mind wants to, our conceptual mind wants to take all of those concepts, and sometimes it'll do a conceptual overlay. So sometimes you'll be sitting on your cushion and you'll say pain or dukkha, and that's a conceptual overlay. But if you want to eat the peach, what you want to do is take your mindfulness and rub it up against the experience that you're having. In fact, you know we can uh, borrow a phrase from our Mahayana brothers and sisters who probably dropped, you know, used this phrase in response to too many concepts of our beautiful Theravada teachers when they said, when they talked about the don't know mind. Sometimes it's really helpful not to know what it is you're experiencing and rub your mindfulness up against it really quick. I mean, really closely. I think Ajahn Tejaniya talks about extracting the wisdom out of the experience rather than just trying to find a concept for it. Because you'll see it. You'll see it with your mindfulness. And that's the way to get as close as you can to the experience. So on to dukkha. So we know that dukkha is a very important concept in the Buddhist cosmology. It's found in two really important places, of course. It's the first noble truth. It's the first noble truth of the Buddha. Uh, and, you know, we know what those four ennobling truths are, which are just fundamental to also what you're doing on the cushion. You know, the four noble truths all have a verb to them. And I think you have heard this many times. Um, you know, the first noble truth, dukkha, is to be known. And I'll talk about how to know it. Or, you know, I've talked a little bit already how to know it. And then the second noble truth is the truth of why we have suffering. And uh, that's clinging and grasping. And clinging is to be let go of. That's the verb associated with clinging. That's what we're doing on the cushion. We're letting go of clinging. The, thir the third noble truth is the truth of the uh, freedom, freedom from clinging and from dukkha. And that's nibbana, freedom, awakening. And that is to be realized. That's what you're doing on the cushion. And then the fourth is the truth of the Eightfold Noble Path. And the Eightfold Path also has a verb, and that is to be cultivated. You know, I just seeing how deluded our minds can get, how many uh, vipalasas, you know, how many distortions of perception, distortions of thinking, distortions of view that we have. You know, long, intensive practice is the most humbling experience, isn't it? It's a very humbling experience. And to see just how many distortions we have, it just reminds me that this is an eightfold path and this practice is 24-7. You know, it's the only way out of the dukkha. It's the only way. 
So um, the second place that dukkha shows up, of course, is, the, is it, it is one of the three characteristics of existence. It's one of the universal characteristics of existence, which is um, another thing that we're trying to see on the cushion during our time here, is we're looking specifically for the truth of dukkha. So the, uh, the Buddha taught that there were three types of dukkha, or in his way of conceptualizing it, there's three types of dukkha. There is dukkha dukkha, which is the suffering of suffering. That's just the physical suffering that's associated with having a body. Things, you know, that's ordinary suffering like the suffering of giving birth or having been born, the suffering of growing old, the suffering of physical illness, and the process of dying. You know, I probably couldn't find a person if I sit down, down with and had a cup of coffee with, who couldn't tell me about some of that suffering in their life right at this moment. I know all of you have come here with varying degrees of health and wellness and illness. Many of you have come with recent losses to uh, your families. I think we know this, we know this dukkha. And we, you know, we have to open to this dukkha. You know, one of my friends, uh, this wonderful yogi gave a Dharma talk at uh, Seattle Insight a while ago, and one thing she said just totally has stayed with me. She said, all mothers die. All mothers die. All fathers die. All brothers die. All sisters die. All children die. That's just the truth of it. That's dukkha dukkha. And there's this... I was wondering about whether just the truth of poverty was dukkha dukkha or viparanama dukkha. I can't decide. <laughs> but uh, a report just came out, some branch of the federal government, that the poverty rate in the United States is 15%, which actually is um, just you know maybe a few um, a few decimal points below its height during our so-called Great Recession. But it's interesting to know that the poverty rate is calculated. Uh, a person is living in poverty if they're in a family of four, a family of four, and they're living on $23,000 a year. That's suffering. That's a lot of suffering. So the second type of suffering is uh, Viparanama Dukkha. And this is the suffering of change or impermanence. And this is the suffering of trying to hold on to things that are always changing. You know, we might get a really beautiful sit on the cushion and just are trying to recreate that experience for the next two days. But things are always changing. It includes the suffering of losing what we want, whether that's a good sitting, whether that's, you know, maybe some physical comfort, maybe in the... Um, thinking within the context of this retreat. It's another helping of a delicious part of dinner, maybe another piece of banana cake. It's holding on to something that you don't want to lose. Guarding. It's like when we get things that we want, that we're attached to, we guard them. And we're willing to do really weird things in guarding our stuff. <laughs> Have you found yourself guarding things? Isn't that funny how we do that? 
And then it includes the suffering of having things that we don't want. And I'm sure that, you know, one of the, um, one of the wonderful things that happens when we're in intensive practices like, like this is that the mindfulness blows everything up. I mean, that's what the mindfulness does. It, it's like having a microscope or a proton microscope looking at all of our defilements or the things that are going on in our mind. So even the slightest little thing can just so annoy us. You know, having the things that we don't want. I don't even want to ask you how many have a Vipassana vendetta going on. <laughs> you know, who moved your cup or who didn't see that you were waiting for the hot water or something. You know, getting the things that we don't want, experiences that we don't want. And, you know, it's really good to look very closely at that. I mean, that's the practice. Don't turn away from that. Rub your mindfulness right up against that and extract the suffering from it. Because that's, what, that's what, will, um, what will trigger the mind to release it. The mind wants to see that suffering. Or, you know, that's part of the wisdom factor is seeing what's inherent in those experiences. So you want to really, non-conceptually though, don't do it conceptually. Do it just with your mindfulness and, you know, really feel, you know, the pleasure or the suffering in those situations. So one of the, um, the um, I'm going to talk about my habitual clinging, and I think this is everyone, so <laughs> I'm sure this is mine and everyone else's, or many people's, not everyone's, of course. And this is the craving and clinging to something called love, romantic love. How many people want romantic love? When I was actually sitting in this three-month retreat, I actually had to have a shorthand note for how many fantasies about romantic love I had. I actually had the shorthand RF for romantic fantasy. <laughs> Every time one would arise, it would be, oh, RF, RF, RF. And you can put a frame around that. You can you know, put that within your mindfulness and see that grasping, that grasping at some type of idea of what's going to make us happy. And here's a little um, saying about that by a psychologist. He says, true love is passionate love that never fades. If you, are in, if you are in true love, you should marry that person. If love ends, you should leave that person because it wasn't true love. And if you can find the right person, you will have true love forever. You might not believe this myth yourself, particularly if you're older than 30. <laughs> but many young people in Western nations are raised on it, and it acts as an ideal that they and we unconsciously carry with us, even if, they, even if we scoff at it. But if, it's true, but if true love is defined as eternal passion, it is biologically impossible. I've come to the um, thinking that any type of, any couples that have been together more than a certain amount of time, it's not because of passionate love as described here, it's because of their paramis. They've got really strong paramis is what probably keeps people together and keeps families together. So that's one example of uh, Vipurinama Dukkha. And then the third type of Dukkha that the Buddha talked about was Sankara Dukkha. And this is the suffering of conditioned states, all pervasive suffering. I heard one teacher, actually Ken McLeod, say, 
This is the suffering that you get when everything is going just fine. <laughs> this is the suffering of ego cleaning, clinging, of suffering with life as it is, the struggle with karma as it unfolds, and wanting it to be different than it is. It's struggling against both inner states and outer states, and it's struggling with our thoughts and emotions. This dukkha is the basic unsatisfactoriness of all forms of life. It indicates a lack of satisfaction. This is an affirmation of what we all know to be true, that life is difficult. You know, one little example of this is, you know, I love flying in and out of Boston so I can have a lobster roll, right? <laughs> I live in Seattle and we don't have lobster rolls in Seattle. So, uh, you know, I've been in and out of the airport a few times in the past couple of weeks and I would always order a lobster roll to go, but I would always tell the guy, so can I order like extra lobster for the lobster roll? <laughs> and he would say, no, you can't order extra lobster. You just have to eat lobster. You'd have to order two lobster rolls. And then, you know, in my mind, I wanted to ask him, but can I get like concentrated lobster? <laughs> it's like having an experience and wanting the experience even more than you have it. It's like many of you here, I've heard from a few people, and I do this on my side, you know, I'm doing this right now as I'm, you know, assisting teaching here. Like, when's the next teaching assistantship I'm going to get? <laughs> and I'm sure many of you are thinking, what's my next retreat going to be? You know, you're already right here in the middle of the retreat. You're having the very exp experience that you're craving for, and it's not enough. It is unsatisfactory because you want it more than you already have it. I'm assisting with this incredible teacher team, just, you know, people who show you that this path is absolutely true with their level of love and insight and wisdom. And I want, I want them more than I already have them. You know, it's like, when's the next time I'm going to be able to hang out? <laughs> that is Sankara Dukkha. It's just never enough. It's never enough. So um, that is a description of, you know, a very brief description of dukkha. You know, you could study, you could do a PhD in dukkha. I'm sure you all know. Um, but now I want to talk about um, a little bit more explicitly about what causes dukkha. What is the cause of dukkha? And um, getting to um, those two ways of knowing. I think that intuitive awareness, you know, our two knowledge systems, we have in, our intuitive knowledge system, which is very indigenous. You know, a lot of indigenous peoples, that is, a, you know, a very well, uh, highly regarded way to know things in indigenous systems. And um, as is, you know, regular linear ways of knowing. I mean, have you ever seen the pyramids? Thank you. <laughs> but... Um, so I want, to, I want to read a story about the causes of dukkha, the causes of dukkha. And this is an old indigenous story about an old Cherokee grandfather. An old Cherokee is teaching his grandson about life. He's saying, a fight is going on inside me, he said to the boy. It's a terrible fight, and it's between two wolves. One is evil. He has anger, envy, sorrow, lamentation. Regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority and superiority, lies, false pride, and ego. 
And then he continues, the other wolf is a good wolf. He has joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. And the uh, Cherokee grandfather says to his grandson, and the same fight is going on inside of you and inside of every other person too. The grandson thought about it for a minute and then asked his grandfather, which wolf will win? And the old Cherokee grandfather replied, the one that you feed. So there's this other old indigenous grandfather. I'm, I don't think he was a grandfather, but his name was Ajahn Chah. <laughs> he has a similar story. Do we have any people from Thailand here? I want to bow to the wisdom of your tradition. I'm going to borrow a story from your tradition. Thank you. So Ajahn Chah says, he tells a similar story. This path consists of virtue, samadhi, and wisdom, the framework for training the heart. Their true meaning is not to be found in these words, but dwells in the depths of our hearts. That's what virtue, samadhi, and wisdom are like. They revolve continually. The Eightfold Noble Path will envelop any sight, sound, taste, smell, bodily, body sensation, or object of the mind that arises. However, if the factors of the path are weak and timid, the defilements will possess our minds. If the noble path is strong and courageous, it will conquer and destroy the defilements. As Dhamma practice develops in the heart, these two forces have to battle it out at every step of the way. It's like these are two people arguing inside the mind, but it's just the path of Dhamma and the defilements struggling to win domination of the heart. The two sides will continue to fight, out, fight it out until eventually there is a victor and the whole affair is settled. Having insight into impermanence means not allowing ourselves to suffer. It's a matter of investigating with wisdom. For example, we obtain something we consider good or pleasurable and so we're happy. Take a close look and sustained, take a close and sustained look at this goodness and pleasure. These are meditation instructions he's giving us. Sometimes we have it for a long time. We get fed up with it. We want to give it away or sell it. Is there anybody who wants to buy it? If there's nobody who wants to buy it, we're ready to throw it away. Why? Because everything is, an, is impermanent, inconsistent, and changing. That's why. If we can't sell it or throw it away, we start to suffer. The entire issue is just like that. And once one incident is fully understood, no matter how many more similar situations arise, they are all understood to be just the same. That's simply the way things are. As the saying goes, if you've seen one, you've seen them all. So how did Ajahn Chah know about eBay and Craigslist? <laughs> you get your stuff, you know, you, get, you crave for a sensual pleasure. Whatever it is, the latest you know, thing, you know, the iPhone 5 is out right now. How many people have said, I can't, I gotta get me an iPhone 5. And then, you know, in two months, there'll be a bunch of iPhone 5, 5s on eBay and Craigslist. Because whatever satisfaction that we thought we would get from that, you know, it's not that those things are bad. You know, they're good to enjoy. They're good to use skillful. We can use skillful means. The problem we have is when we expect them to give us a level of fulfillment that they never will give. It's just 
sankara dukkha. It's all conditioned things can never bring ultimate happiness. That is the that is one of the ultimate definitive definitions of dukkha. All conditioned things can never bring ultimate happiness. So, what are some of the other causes of suffering? And the, you know, these are instructions for the cushion, things to look at on the cushion. Uh, you know, the taints are said to cause the suffering, or the things that we're really clinging to. And one of the taints is the taint of sensuality. Even if it's just that cup of tea that you really want to have, really notice what it's like that craving for the cup of tea. And then the clinging to the cup of tea once you have it. Notice the couple really excellent hints of pleasure when you take the first, first couple of sips of the tea. And then notice what happens after that. That's the taint of sensuality. And then the taint of becoming. This is um, just how we make ourselves through thoughts and clinging on the cushions. I mean, whenever I'm in intensive practice or even just in my daily practice, how many thoughts are you having telling yourself who you are? I mean, don't you know who you are? Why do we have to continually tell ourselves who we are? It is so amazing to me how many thoughts that we have that are self-referential. I'm like this. I'm like that. I'm better than her. I'm better than him. I'm better than that. Or I'm worse than that. I'm worse than him. I'm worse than her. Very self, uh, self uh, just notice, I'm sure you all have noticed how many of your thoughts are just constructing yourself in relation to this and that. And I want to read a good little, um, a good little saying about that. This is a little um, quote about effort versus success. Effort is more important than so-called success because effort is a real thing. What we call success is just the manifestation of our mind's ability to categorize things. This is success, that is failure. Who says, you says, that's all. Reality is what it is beyond all concepts of success and failure. So don't let, you know, don't convince yourself that, you know, try to extract the wisdom out of the experience the knowledge of what's happening in your practice will arise out of that intuitive system. You know, I'm always trying to, I'm always using my conceptual mind to try to categorize and pull things out and, you know, um, try to have an experience that I know that I've had in the past. But the knowledge of what's going on in the moment will arise out of that intuitive system if you're just, if you're just strengthening it and if your mindfulness is continuous. The other um, causes of um, dukkha are, in addition to just craving and clinging to sensuality, craving and clinging to existence, craving and clinging to ignorance, just not knowing clearly what things are life, like, and craving and uh, clinging to views. For example, um, the Abhidhamma says that wrong view, which is one of the mental factors in our mind, we could actually, you know, click off what mental factors in our mind, and wrong view is one of those. Uh, its characteristic is unwise interpreting, maybe, you know, interpreting something as inherently beautiful that's not beautiful, or inherently, 
worthwhile when maybe it's not very worthwhile. Its function is to presume things. It thinks it knows things. There we have, you know, that mind that knows things. That's one of the functions of it. Its manifestation is wrong belief, and its proximal cause is not understanding the Dhamma. Buddhaghosa in the Abhidhamma has a, a way that he characterizes, he distinguishes between uh, craving and clinging. Craving and clinging, yes. He says that craving is the aspiration for an object that has not yet been reached, like a thief stretching out his hand in the dark, clinging, and then clinging is the grasping of an object that one has reached, like the thief's grasping at an object. This is like that protecting thing that we do. You know, we have a few things that were really tied up to our experience and to our identity here, and we're just really guarding them. The Buddha talks about the aggregate of clinging. He is referring to our grasping and guarding physical, mental, and conscious experiences that we falsely believe that we possess. And I think that actually Guy is going to give a really good talk on the aggregates as a way to pry loose our clinging and, and um, craving. So how do we let go of dukkha? So I've talked for 30 minutes about dukkha and its causes, and now I want to talk about letting go of dukkha for the next time. How do we let go of dukkha? And isn't it so wonderful that this path is exactly about that? We know that the Buddha taught one thing, and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. Though some people think that's actually two things, but <laughs> never mind. <laughs> so um, in the Navasutta, the Buddha talks about um, meditation, because that's what we're doing here, the Satipatthana, the four foundations of mindfulness. And everything that comes with that cultivation, that is the way to let go of dukkha. And he talks about that in the Navasutta. He talks about a hen. He said, without expecting suffering to be decreased or expecting suffering to go away without bhavana, without this cultivation, he says, it's like a hen expecting the chicks to break through the eggs without incubating them rightly. So it just can't be done. All of these um, cravings and clings are let go through this meditation that we have. And, it, you know, it's not necessarily a quick process. And, you know, we might want to see, a lot of us, I think this conceptual mind wants to see progress, right? And it'll try to manipulate our experience to see that progress. But the Buddha said in the same sutta, he said, um, we abandon it through meditation and that we can't necessarily see as these taints and other defilements are let go. But he says, it's just as when a carpenter sees the marks of his fingers or thumb on the handle of his axe. Um, but does, uh, you know, he wants to see the, you know, his fingers or his thumb print on the handle of the axe or the way that it has its impression on the axe. You know, the uh, carpenter might say, today my axe handles wore down this much or yesterday it wore down that much or the day before yesterday it wore, it wore down that much. Still he knows it is worn through when it is worn through. So it does work. You know, we are working to eradicate those um, those defilements. And I want to read something that um, that a 
Pima Chodron said about that, the detox period. When you refrain from habitual thoughts and behavior, the uncomfortable feelings will still be there. They don't magically disappear. Over the, over the years, I've come to call resting with the uncomfortable the detox period. Because when you don't act on your habitual patterns, it's like giving up an addiction. You're left with the feelings you are trying to escape. The practice is to make a wholehearted relationship with that. So many of you might be sitting and detoxing from all of these negative mind states. But that's just what we have to do. That's the practice right now. And we can do it with equanimity. I mean, that's one of the things that arises in our practice. With good continuity, equanimity will arise to help resource that. That's the beauty of the practice, that once we have a continuity of mindfulness, the um, five spiritual faculties arise, the seven enlightenment factors arise, and they're a resource for us as we do this, this uh, work of detoxification and purification. So we know that the afflictions are all manifestations of greed, hatred, and delusion. I think I saw a list of 108 of them. And if you wanted, you could probably look to the root of greed, hatred, or ignorance to any of the things that are arising in your mind. Um, but, you know, we have a way to um, evade them, a way to not see the suffering, the dukkha that's right there um, in our experience. And there's certain ways that we have, um, we have of evading. One is outright denial. We'll just deny that, you know, we're suffering. We might be moving incessantly on the cushion or the chair because our body is so uncomfortable, but in our minds it's like we're just doing fine. We might rationalize what's happening. We might explain away our situation or push our feelings into the background. We might preoccupy ourselves with external fixes. You know, I mean, I think that's very common. If we were not in here, we might do that with television or drugs or alcohol or sex or spending or shopping, anything like that. You can name your poison. We all know what our favorite preoccupation is to... Um, to not see the suffering. Another way that we evade it is blame. We project our suffering outward. Boy, that is totally my way of invading. <laughs> they say, I heard one teacher once say that deluded types have a lot of uh, blame. So I'm a deluded type. So I think I'm always doing that. I'm always looking who, who's to blame for my current un, uh, unwholesome or unpleasant experience. We manipulate uh, with self-pity, and you know we can torture ourselves with guilt. So what is the instructions? What are the instructions? Their instructions are to hold suffering and mindfulness and clear comprehension. We have to become familiar with the physical nature of our reaction to these defilements in our minds. And you know, like I said earlier, you know, mindfulness which is strengthened by continuity and not a lot of efforting, you know, either. Just, you know, uh, Joseph's really beautiful innovation and training tool, you know, there is a body to just be with the body as much as possible and feel the feelings, not looking at them, feeling the feelings. So we're with, uh, you know, we increase this um, mindfulness and we're able to see more clearly, that'll increase the mindfulness and we'll see more clearly what is happening in our, in our minds. 
So I wanted to talk a little bit about the arrow, uh, the parable of the two arrows, because we know, you know, the Buddha actually suffered with physical ailments to his death. So what is it that is, we're actually gaining by doing this practice? You know, what is the nature of the freedom then if we still have one level of suffering? And, you know, there is this parable that the first arrow is the underlying angst of being a vulnerable and mortal human animal. That's just the suffering of having a human body. The second arrow could be considered the oppression, or it could be considered everything that we put on top of that. All of the papancha and views and craziness we put on top of what it means to be, uh, to be in a body. And you know that has different manifestations for different people. I think for uh, in this day and age, we could see that um, you know the second arrow manifests on the individual level, and in, you know um, exposure to poverty, to lack of opportunity, to exposure to racism and sexism, to uh, homophobia. All of the ways that uh, dukkha is manifest on a social level, um, and you know, there's many ways that we have all thought about how that happens. Uh, in the research center that I work in at the University of Washington, we do a lot of work about intergenerational and historical trauma, and we all know that that exists. And you know, that's one wonderful, um, I think, under theorized or under thought about or taught. Um, benefit of mindfulness of the body. Because when you get in mindfulness of the body, I know I've heard from many of you, and for me, I cried for the first five years I did this practice because I was forever finding places of uh, holding and tension, you know, trauma that was, was uh, experienced and not let go of because it wasn't a safe place to let go of it. And mindfulness of the body can really tap into those places of holding and let go of that tension and that trauma. Um, another way that microaggression, I mean, another way that dukkha is expressed for people of color and others, every, you know, everybody in our, in our, um, in our uh, society is through something called microaggressions. And we know that there are microaggressions against people of color, there's microaggressions against women, uh, particularly women in you know, certain, um, certain job categories or in certain situations where that are historically male-oriented. And maybe there are microaggressions against men in traditionally women-focused um, areas. There's microaggressions. Um, I actually heard a, a presentation recently from the guy who actually invented the implicit attitudes test. And this would be excellent for meditators, the implicit attitude test. And those are um, you know, a little test that you take to see your implicit attitudes about age, about gender, about sexual orientation, about race and ethnicity. And I'm gonna tell you the most, he, he told us, I saw this presentation about six months ago, and he said the strongest microaggression or the most universal one was actually against age that older people actually experience a lot of microaggressions. And you know, very strong ones, of course, against race, against African Americans and other people of color. And you know, a fair amount of microaggressions or implicit negative attitudes towards uh, women. And I want to tell you a story of um, a little microaggression. 
um, that I heard about. I, a while ago, I gave a lecture at UC Berkeley about microaggressions. And this one student, this Navajo student, she was from the Navajo Nation. Any Navajos here? Bow to the Navajos. I'm going to tell a Navajo Nation story. So um, she was talking about being at UC Berkeley. She was taking an epidemiology class. And uh, they were talking about social determinants of health and health inequity and how communities of color have hugely disproportionate ill health in other communities. And this was a woman, a young woman, who had been born and raised on the Navajo Nation. And next to her, there was this really very well-meaning, I'm sure it was a very well-meaning uh, physician in training, this person doing a joint MD and PH. And, you know, they had to break into small groups. And so they broke into small groups, and this physician turned to this Native woman and said, oh, man, I just did a paper on Indians. So I'm going to tell you all about what your social conditions are. <laughs> so he told her about, you know, the inequities and injuries and uh, cancer-related uh, death and disability. He just laid out the epidemiology of health inequities. And she just sat there and listened, and then she said to him, yeah, but I ate the peach. <laughs> she didn't really say that. I just made that up. <laughs> but, you know, that's the same experience, right? It's like, well, you can tell me that, and then I'll tell you what my life has been like. I'll tell you what it is to live that experience. And that's the difference between conceptual knowledge and intuitive awareness. So that was a microaggression, I think. And, you know, I, I think that we need to be aware that we all perpetrate microaggressions because we all, until we're fully enlightened, we all have distortions of perception, thought, and view. I'll tell you about a microaggression that I just committed, not too, maybe a couple months ago. Um, you know, I have a beloved colleague at the University of Washington who actually brought me to Seattle. I would not be in Seattle if it wasn't for her. She's a two-spirit Native woman. You know, she's got a wonderful wife, Jane, and a wonderful daughter. And uh, Jane was, I think, in China. She does HIV work. She was out of town. And their daughter, who is my goddaughter, was uh, performing. She was going to have a play, you know, a play, a grammar school play. Actually, primary school. You know, she was in primary school. They were putting on Annie, and I'd never seen Annie, so I really wanted to go. So I went, and it was just a wonderful show. And during the intermission, my friend was telling me how that this was a public school, but for middle schools, they were going to have to move her to a private school. They were really concerned, and fortunately, she's, you know, the family, or it's a Native family, um, they were able to afford to send the daughter to private school. And she said, the reason I want to do that is because discipline gets very unruly in the middle school, you know, and uh, we both hypothesized, and, you know, the thought came into my mind, oh, it's probably a lot of single mothers. That's why there's so much more unruliness. And the first thing out of my mouth to her was, yeah, I guess that's what happens when there's no father in the home. You know, and I immediately, both immediately realized what I had said and said, oh, my God, I can't believe I said that. Like that, you know, but those are the distortions of perception. Those are the lenses that we have on that we don't even realize that we have. And those are the things that we are uprooting, you know, being on this cushion. We are just purifying that. We're seeing that. We're breaking it up and letting that go and trying to see, you know, reality for what it is.
so how else can we apply this um, teaching of um, dukkha on the cushion in our practice? I want to um, warn us, you know, a lot of us are very smart and, you know, have a lot of theories about things like how the world works, about oppression and racism, about sexism, and all of those. And those are very important and useful tools out in the world. You know, they, uh, they actually make visible often what is invisible because, um, you know, it's hard to see some of these things that are intentionally being masked so they won't be seen. But I have to say that on this cushion, it might not be that useful to, to engage with them, just on this cushion. Um, you guys all know the story of the Buddha was walking through a forest with all of his followers, and he picked up a handful of leaves, and uh, he said to his followers, what is more plentiful, uh, the leaves in this forest or the leaves that I have in my hand? And his uh, bhikkhus all said, um, the leaves in the forest, of course, um, you know, blessed one. And he said, yes, and I know as much knowledge as the leaves in this forest, but I am only teaching you this handful of leaves because this is all you need to know to alleviate suffering. And that's good news for us. That's good news for us all in practice right now. You know, there's only a few things that we need to know to do this practice, but we need to engage with it. We need to do it. So um, one other uh, unsettling thing that comes from this understanding of dukkha, I think, is to know that in addition to uprooting the dukkha in ourselves, you know, we have to investigate what's going on with the people that we think are the enemy as well. You know, we really have to have a uh, benevolent um, attitude towards them. And I want to read two things. I wanted to read this one other resource for us as we encounter dukkha. And um, we know that one of the resources for us as we encounter dukkha is to do the Brahma Viharas. Um, actually, what that does is it just, you know, inclines our mind to have our um, investigation filled with metta, filled with karuna. So I want to read this little um, example of how we might do that. So this is between a tech support guy and a customer. So this is tech support. Yes, ma'am, how can I help you? Customer, well, after much consideration, I've decided to install love. Can you guide me through the process? Tech support, yes, I can help you. Are you ready to proceed? Customer, yes, I, I'm not very technical, but, but I think I'm ready. What do I do first? Tech support, the first step is to open your heart. Have you located your heart, ma'am? <laughs> Customer, yes, there are, but there are several other programs running right now. Is it okay to install love while they are running? Tech support, what programs are running, ma'am? Customer, let's see. I have past hurt, low self-esteem, grudge, and resentment running right now. <laughs> Tech support, no problem. Love will gradually ease past hurt from your current operating system. It may remain in your permanent memory, but it will no longer disrupt other programs. Love will eventually override low self-esteem with a nodule of its own called high self-esteem. However, you have to completely turn off grudge and resentment. <laughs> those programs prevent love from being properly installed. Can you turn those off, ma'am? 
I don't know how to turn them off. Can you tell me how? With pleasure, go to your start menu and invoke forgiveness. <laughs> Do this as many times as necessary until grudge and resentment have been completely erased. Okay, done. Oh, wow, love is starting, it's dulling itself. Is that normal? <laughs> yes, but remember, there are only, that is only the base program. You need to begin connecting to other hearts in, in order to get the upgrades. Oh my gosh, I'm getting an error message. It says, error, program not run on external components. What should I do? Tech support. Don't worry, ma'am. It means the love program is set up to run on external hearts, but it has yet to be run on your heart. In non-technical terms, it means you have to love yourself before you can love others. So what should I do? Can you pull down self-acceptance from the menu, pull down self-acceptance, then click on the following. Forgive self, realize your worth, acknowledge your limitations. <laughs> Customer, okay, done. Tech support, now copy them to my heart directory. The system will overwrite any conflicting files and begin patching fa faulty programming. Also, you need to delete verbose self-criticism from any directories and empty your recycle bin. <laughs> Customer, got it. Hey, my heart is filling up with new files. Smile is playing on my monitor and peace and contentment are copying themselves all over. Is that normal? Sometimes, for others it takes a while, but eventually everything gets downloaded at the proper time. So love is installed and running. One more thing before we hang up. Love is freeware. Be sure to give it and, to, to give it and its various modules to everyone you meet. They will in turn share it with others and return some cool modules back to you. Customer, I promise to do that. <laughs> So that's what we're doing here. And the Buddha taught us how to do that. Um, actually, I had wanted to talk about this um, new book out. It's called Love 2.0. And it's about the truth of, you know, the biology of love. And, you know, um, actually our Sangha read this and it really had a profound impact on them. They, um, you know, actually what the story of this new 2.0 love is, is that you don't always feel that you know, either passionate romantic love or even familial love, you don't always feel that. And, you know, that's okay. That's actually biologically what happens. And this um, really, you know, it was interesting that some of the mothers and parents in the Sangha really kind of felt let, let off the hook. They had been feeling guilty that they didn't always passionately love their kids, but that's not how it works. The other message of this Love 2.0 is that we can actually have moments of what physiolog physiologically happens in romantic love with many people throughout the day. So, you know, people who are single and lonely, if you open up your heart, you can have something that the author called a, uh, a, um, a moment of positive resonance. You have this sense of love with people if you can connect with them. And physiologically, you know, your mirror neurons will collect and your vagal tone will vibrate together and things like that. So um, it's good to know. And, and actually, it's interesting in the book because um, they talk about one method for increasing the ability to actually have these micro moments of love. Guess who knew that 2,500 years ago? <laughs> 
the author talks about this practice, you know, this ancient esoteric practice called loving kindness meditation <laughs> that allows us to feel micro moments of resonance, micro moments of love throughout the day with a variety of people we come in contact with. So I bet all of you have been feeling that with just your fellow yogis, haven't you? Those micro moments of connection. So that's another resource for us as we open to dukkha. And then I wanted to read this one quote by, uh, quote by Martin Luther King about the other reason why we can't hate our enemies. Uh, it's called The Toll Hatred Takes. And this was a, a, uh, a, a talk he gave in 1957. There's another reason why you should love your enemies, and that it's because hate distorts the personality of the hater. We usually think of what hate does for the individual hated or the individuals hated or the groups hated. But it is even more tragic. It is even more ruinous and injurious to the individuals who hate. You just begin hating, you just begin hating somebody and you will begin to do irrational things. You can't see straight when you hate. You can't walk straight when you hate. You can't stand straight. Your vision is distorted. There is nothing more tragic than to see an individual whose heart is filled with hate. He comes to the point that he becomes a pathological case. For the person who hates, you can stand up and see a person, and that person could be beautiful, and you will see it as ugly. You could see a person who uh, is ugly and see it as beautiful. For the person who hates, the good becomes bad, and the bad becomes good. For the person who hates, the truth becomes false, and the false becomes true. That's what hate does. You can't see right. The symbol of objectivity is lost. Hate destroys the very structure of the personality of the hater. So he knew it too. He knew, you know, what happened when. I mean, that's the same story that Ajahn Chah and the old Cherokee grandfather taught. It's a universal truth. So just to wrap up, I want to say that this talk was about dukkha, about the various types of dukkha. There's three types of it. What causes dukkha? Dukkha and suffering is caused by our mental defilements, but exactly what you're doing is the exact way to release dukkha. And we have to do it in a way where we call on the resources of the practice. The practice has a huge amount of resources. You're sitting on a lot of resources. So please use them in your path. And um, continuity, that's a good thing. Gentle, relaxed continuity. Let's sit for a minute. May all beings be free from suffering.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.